Hello and welcome to Rare Cuts Media Society, the podcast that looks at hidden media gems that even Captain Nemo might find tempting. With your hosts, as always, I'm Andrew Gigota, and with me we've got Rob Lechik. How are you today, Rob? Oh, I'm doing very well. I'm ready to dive to those many leagues under the sea. Me too. We've got Mike Ross. How are you today, Mike? I just want to be a part of that world. <laughs> Wrong movie. <laughs> are we talking about uh, uh, Little Mermaid? It's a or Disney or reference. Okay. Yeah, Eric can appreciate it, I'm sure. It's true, indeed. And of course, we've got Eric Hathorne. How are you today, Eric? Pretty good. I am a little uh, ashamed as a Disney fan to say that I hadn't seen this one before making you all watch it for our, our theme of not or movies that we haven't seen before, but probably should have. Well, we've corrected an error then. Just don't make me eat any of those under the sea delicacies. I mean, who knows? <laughs> they, they all seem to enjoy them. So just don't tell me what's in it, you know? <laughs> I'll skip yeah. that silver Long John Silver's uh, trip right here. <laughs> oh man! Anyway, like Eric was saying, it's our arc of episodes on movies we've always meant to watch but just never got around to, and it's Eric's pick, so I will pass it straight on over to him. Yes, thank you. And I did pick Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, so it, it's one of those that that it is like a, it's kind of a milestone in Disney movies, which we'll kind of get into is kind of a big deal at the time. And it still kind of is uh, in the Disney fan community and like Disney nerds and stuff like that, like me. Um, but I never saw it. And it might have something to do with my my fear of uh, of of water movies, which is a, a thing that that is true. But um, this I one, think- I. I I'm yeah. going to just attest to that, just growing up with you. And <laughs> I remember it was Clone Wars, but they, they go they go to that ocean planet where they're checking on the clones. And Eric was just like, oh, no. <laughs> now you see, I was thinking I first of Jar Jar Binks and them going underwater because that freaked me out. But I think I was blanking out that scene where they go to check on the clones because there's so much water and there's a storm and now I'm getting I'm getting anxious. <laughs> so let's dive in, right? <laughs> so you're telling me you don't want to watch a famous Kevin Costner film either? Waterworld. <laughs> I, I did watch Waterworld and I was I was more fine with that. Um but no this one I will report that this one did not uh get me. Um, and I think it's probably because you could you could kind of tell that they weren't too far offshore um, in a lot of the water scenes. I you know except for like one of them, which they you know was totally done in the studio. More on that later. Um, did get a little freaky to me, but not. It was still okay. It was still okay. But yes, so twenty thousand leagues under the sea did pass my test for uh, being water freaky. But it's also the secret sequel to my pick from last summer when we did our 1953 series, because in that episode, we talked about how Disney created Buena Vista distribution for the living desert being the first uh, Disney project released with Buena Vista and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was the first Disney feature distributed by 
Buena Vista. So it, it's also kind of a cool thing. I, also, Walt Disney got the idea for making this movie when he was reviewing underwater footage for a true life adventure, which kind of plays into that. So I figured we, instead of a Disney reference on this episode, because the whole thing's a Disney reference, I would reference Rare Cuts Media Society in the podcast as like a flip there. See how I did that? See how I did that? <laughs> but anyways, let's get into uh, some of our <laughs> our discussion. Yeah, yeah, crickets. No. <laughs> let's get into some of our discussion on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So it's the classic Disney live-action adventure film released in 1954, directed by Richard Fleischer, who I will note is the son of the Fleischer Studios. Um, I can't remember, was it Max Fleischer? Uh who was a direct competitor to Walt Disney. So Disney hired his competitor's son just because he was the right man for the job. So it's based on Jules Verne's novel of the same name, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And the story follows Professor Pierre Aranax and his assistant and a harpooner, Ned Land, as they join an expedition to investigate a mysterious sea disturbance and a possible sea monster and very soon they figure out that the, the, there's this advanced submarine out there called the Nautilus that's commanded by this enigmatic Captain Nemo. And as the crew explores the wonders and dangers of the deep sea, they struggle with Nemo's disdain and approach to society's destructive tendencies. The film combines thrilling underwater sequences with the exploration of ethical dilemmas. Very Disney, right? offering a captivating blend of science fiction and adventure set against the backdrop of the underwater world. So I got to ask, did any of you see this? Like are any of you like up, di like out Disneying me here and you saw this before today slash has anyone read the book um, by Jules Verne? And when I say, has anyone read the book and I saw Andrew make a little motion, I was, Definitely directly asking Andrew that because I figured he was our best bet. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never seen this before, but um, I grew up as a big Jules Verne fan. I loved and watched it with my mom all the time, the uh, adaptation of Journey to the Center of the Earth with the fabulous James Mason and that as well. <laughs> and... Uh, so I hadn't seen it before and I actually hadn't read it before. So what I did was I read it in prep for this podcast Ah, because I had, uh, you know, I have his complete Jules Verne's complete works on my Kindle. And I said, well, you know what, let me dig into this so that I'll be a little better prepared. And, and it did help a lot. Um, nice. Having said that I could do like an entire podcast on comparing the two, but I won't, I won't do that today because that would take over your thunder. <laughs> we'll definitely <laughs> pop in with some of those when we can. Cause one thing I, yeah. I've never read it either, but one thing I have heard is that uh, Walt Disney did try to stay pretty close as far mm -hmm. as like, you know, a Hollywood you know, two hour Hollywood movie could do that. Yeah. Um, but he did try to stay close is what they, they claim. It's a very good ad adaptation. And when I say that, I don't mean that it sticks really close to the novel. It does in ways, and especially early in the movie. Um, but then it it really kind of does distance itself uh, later on because a lot of the later on stuff, and especially the 
Nemo, well, his end, they changed it, but they also incorporated a lot of Jules Verne's uh, sequel to a, The Mysterious Island, which he wrote five years later. And so that the whole, like, you know, oh, Volcania, well, they don't call it Volcania, but The Mysterious Island is basically Volcania in the movie. Uh, gotcha. And, and Nemo doesn't actually die until mysterious island so so they kind of spoiler alert yeah (laughs) so there's like there's a lot that you could dig into in that but as far as being a a film adaptation i think it's it's fantastic because it took all of the the meat and bones from the the book and made it a possible to our movie whereas if you if you took the book and stuck straight to it it would be the most boring thing you've ever seen because (laughs) i love jules verne but he's so scientific Mm. there are parts of the book that are like 20 pages long just telling you all of the different things he sees underwater with nemo 20 pages (laughs) and and that that kind of coincides well with uh, I, I watched a documentary about the making of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and the, the director basically is saying what you're saying, which is, how am I going to make this into a cohesive film? And so he knew he had to get the right writer on it right away to uh, make it possible and make it so it's not just like a collection of stories and, and make it into a film narrative. Yeah, because the the book for twenty thousand, it's there are so many more little episodes that they do under the under the water, like Atlantis and the the pole, the, you know, mm. just crazy stuff. But you you couldn't do the movie with all of that. It would be a series. Yeah, I will say the only reference that I had to that I could speak to specifically about 20,000 leagues under the sea was the reference in back to the future three where doc Brown and Clara are talking back and forth and about how he read it as a child. But then she makes the point of like, it was just published guy. What are you talking about? It just came out. Yeah. (laughs) But I had not seen the film. Uh, I did not read the book. I mean, only just kind of had it in, uh, pop culture of like the giant squid and the big boat under the water, but yeah, never watched the uh, different mediums or read them. Let me ask you this. Like, was it what you were expecting it to be? I thought it was going to be more of a kind of a standard adventure film uh, where, because I, I hadn't read the story. I hadn't seen the movie either. Um, I had seen clips of it. And a lot of the clips I see are there's uh, a YouTube series uh, called Monstrum. It's a PBS thing that they do on YouTube and their episode on the Kraken. There's a lot of footage from the movie in there. So it's like, that's my connection. I, I had not had any familiarity. So going into it, I think I I had more of the mindset of something similar to journey to the center of the earth, where it's going to be like an expedition and they're going to go down and uh, explore the very depths of the ocean and discover bizarre, strange creatures. And, 
And so, yeah, I was, I was kind of taken aback to find that, oh, it's this very vindictive person who is trying to create a, an undersea utopia aboard his ship. So uh, it was not what I expected. Ultimately, I agree with Mike. It was not what I was expecting in the end, but it was for, say, the first 30 to 45 minutes. I think like getting on the boat, how they got on there and um, the, the dining with him and eating all like the, the crazy foods that were all from the ocean um, and even to diving to harvest more food. I, I, that part really grabbed me, but I'm kind of with Mike. Like once kind of dived into some of the other areas of like how Captain Nemo kind of a, Kind of, that's not the greatest of characters, like nicest of characters, if you will. Um, um, kind of, it kind of, I don't want to say soured me, but it was kind of like a place I didn't expect it to go, and I kind of, I don't say lost interest, but um, it's a little bit of a downer. It took a turn. Yeah, it took a turn. It took a turn for you. Yeah, I, yeah, it, it, it did. It's surprising in that way, right? Like it's not necessarily what we'd expect from you know what Disney was known for making at the time and what, uh, like you think adventure and it does get kind of, um, moral dilemma. Yeah. And, uh, like the underwater sea footage and stuff was really cool. And I immediately was like, Oh, this reminds me of, uh, the living desert and things like that. And I was like, Oh, so he had a bunch of stock footage and he wanted to use it in a movie. <laughs> He's the really high end Ed Wood of, of the world. <laughs> but honest i gotta be honest about one scene i just want to make sure i mention this is uh the scene where they go out out of the ship to collect food so they're collecting plants different sea creatures like like lobsters and stuff there's a scene where they're they have and are physically holding sea turtles by their, their fins yeah I had nightmares about that scene afterwards. I was like, that's so yeah. disturbing to me. <laughs> Hollywood pre like, yeah. like animal restriction and PETA and like, yeah, it definitely was not cool. Mm-hmm. The way they were like handling the sea creatures for sure. All right. So enough about 20,000 leagues under the sea. Let's talk about something completely different. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I do want to change the subject a little. And I want to ask you this question. It's maybe a leading question. I want to ask you about like what makes a movie a blockbuster movie. Maybe you have an example of like when I think of a blockbuster movie and not one that you rented from a blockbuster rental place. But like when you say like the summer blockbusters, what's what makes a blockbuster movie for you? What makes something big like that that's going to be that big summer movie? Huge budget, but equally huge uh, box office. A blockbuster movie is one that makes me yell, wow, what a difference. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that makes me sound aged, but that's, the... that's what it is. No, it, it, it really, to me, it's like it's got to either break box office records or come close to it like they, they think it will, and it just almost does. Yeah. It's got to be something big like that in the box office. I, I agree. I think it has the biggest definer for me is that it's very financially successful 
But I will say that does not necessarily the film is mean the film is any good, but it's just very successful financially. <laughs> that's true. Right, like that, yeah. And that's like too like the big event is kind of like what I mm-hmm. I feel like they make an event out of it because they've spent spent mm-hmm. so much money on marketing and the movie itself and all that. So the reason I ask that is I kind of want to get us set up here because film historians would would claim they'd tell you that Jaws was the first blockbuster. I tried to like figure out what was the first big blockbuster movie. And the 1975 success of Jaws demonstrated the financial potential of releasing a high-profile entertaining film during the summer when audiences were more available out of school, maybe like vacation time, those kind of things. And this success is what prompted other studios to kind of follow this, establishing our current you know summer blockbuster season as a lucrative and anticipated period for like releasing films in the industry. But 21 years before that, Walt Disney put more money and effort into making a live action movie than he ever had with 20,000 Leagues. He only started making live action movies to spend the money that he had tied up in Europe after World War II. They had some rules about taking money out of the countries. So he decided to make some, I'll just make some cheaper live action films in England and then I can get the money back when I release it in the United States. Um, so, but after seeing, he saw like he could make a lot of money off of these live action movies. He could make them quicker than an animated movie. He kind of added that to the Disney repertoire and he went bigger than ever when he made 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He made it a big kind of event, big budget thing. It was the biggest budget for a Disney film up to that point, And it was, I'm pretty sure, the biggest budget in Hollywood at the time. Which makes me wonder if I should have picked this for rare cuts. But, like, none of us had seen it. So I think it's still pretty rare, to like, as of today. But he projected it would take him about $5 million to produce it. But it ended up taking $9 million, like, almost twice that. And it was the, mo- yeah, it was the most expensive Hollywood film at the time. So 20,000 Leagues was one of the first films to truly take advantage of the new anamorphic widescreen cinemascope technology. So like when you watch that and saw that widescreen, it's probably something we're used to today, but it was like the first Disney film to do that. And it was one of the first films to kind of take advantage of using the whole widescreen and uh, framing the shots for that size. The movie did also feature an all-star cast and crew, which Disney usually didn't do. They usually kept it to more affordable stars. And it was the first Disney live action movie to be filmed at the Walt Disney Studios. And because of that, they did have to build another soundstage. This one with a giant state-of-the-art water tank to film some of those scenes like that one with the giant squid. But that wasn't even enough. Disney also had to rent larger studio spaces at Universal and Warner Brothers, as well as filming on location in the Bahamas and Jamaica. And when it was released in July of 1954, it was ultimately a smashing success. It made $28.2 million at the box office, and it took home Academy Awards for special effects and art direction. So it, it became... It, it got a good return on its investment, even though it was a high-cost movie at the time. So is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea really the first blockbuster? Or at least the godfather of the modern blockbuster? I want to hear what you guys think of that. Well, I just want to add to one thing you said there. Um, the advertising for this film was also 
one of the largest advertising campaigns a film had ever had. They went all out. That's part of the reason the budget got started creeping up. Um, and so, yeah, I, to, to answer the question, I would say this is definitely the, the, the grandfather of the summer blockbuster. I would say it's a blockbuster, but I wouldn't call it the godfather or anything like that. I'd call Gone with the Wind the blockbuster oh. godfather. Because that, I mean, you know, it's been re-released and things, but its box office totals 390 some million dollars. Ooh, mama mia. That was 1939. So, I mean, yeah. Though I will, I will say if you look up the history of the use of the word blockbuster, it wasn't used for film until after Gone with the Wind. It was used in the 40s sometime, 43, I think. There weren't any uh, other movies out. So, <laughs> so I mean, you had, you had it was you only had, Gone with the Wind yeah. for like three but, years. No. <laughs> But I mean, with with that at the same time, I mean, Wizard of Oz too was the same year, and that was a huge success, obviously. Um, yeah. So what I film? Mean, I, me, I never heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that sounds like a rare cut. <laughs> oh man, it's starring Doctor Oz. That's a rare cut right there. No. That's all, yeah. no. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, it, it, it's got that, that it's a good point you brought up with the advertising budget. I do want to bring up too, that this came, uh, came out in the theaters right around the same time that Disney was starting the Disneyland TV show. That was like the, the, the first time they were making a show to help fund, uh, like a show for television movie studios didn't used to like to do that. And, and they were going to use the money with that they that they got in that deal to fund the creation of Disneyland. So like this is all kind of roped into that same time as to what's going on in the in the Disney company. This movie's coming out, they've got the show, they're building the park is all kind of is like a big a big time in in the Disney company. But when we're talking about these blockbusters, uh, there have been a few blockbusters, and I'm going to say I'm going to I'm going to continue to call this one a blockbuster now because even if it wasn't The Godfather or it was, we still said it's in that in that zone. But one of the things that's happening with with high profile movies now, and this has kind of been something that's been popping up in the news, is that like musicals in movies are are like your movie musicals are starting to come out, but the advertising is kind of downplaying the music or the musical aspect of them. And, and we've seen this with like the new mean girls musical uh, Wonka and the color purple musical remakes. So like when those movies just came out in, in the past kind of like holiday movie season, a lot of people did not necessarily expect them to be, musicals because of how the advertising was going and there's this idea that maybe a musical is like you know damaged goods like don't tell people it's a musical because it's not going to do as well as if people for some reason and i don't know i love musicals so it doesn't bother me but i gotta ask the question does the music in Twenty Thousand leagues work in the context of the film there's there's like a musical moment in the 1950s, was that just like more common? 
to do versus like, would this still work today if you just like snuck a musical number into your blockbuster movie? What did you guys think of the music in this one? It wouldn't be to that length, like the, the actual uh, Kirk Douglas, Ned Land full song. Like that's a, a pretty big chunk of time. Um, it's a good way to use up time, make your film longer. Um, and it does, it, I mean, it builds his character. And But I don't think modern audiences are going to be as tolerant. And so they might be like a little ditty that they play really quick as they are doing a transition, but like I always struggle with uh, films that have pretty much the orchestra playing constantly. Um, and it can be distracting from what you're watching at times. And then they were doing musical gags too. And so there's, there's music, then there's sing-along, and then there are musical gags. And so there's a lot of musical elements that are going through this. Like when Ned Land plays with Conceal's hair, and they make like a little xylophone sound, moving it back and forth. And it was just kind of a musical joke. And it's like, I don't see people, like, I was thinking in context of how would this come across in a modern blockbuster movie? And it's like, I don't think it would work, but that's my opinion. Yeah, I I have to agree that it doesn't work today. Uh, in the fifties, I think, and in this case, I I would argue that it, not the background orchestra, but the uh, Ned Land song and the orchestra, or I'm sorry, organ playing by Nemo, are, they serve good points because. Ned Land, in, and this is also going back to the novel, you, he, Jules Verne tries to show that he's really wanting to get back to land, uh, and, but that he loves sailing so much that he, he can't ever leave the, the sea either. So he needs that freedom to be able to choose where he goes. And the movie gives a, a little bit of that, but then the, the song is what really gives you that kind of characterization because he's so overjoyed while he's singing it. And you don't really get that kind of joy in the novel, but there's all these other times where they talk about adventures he's done and things like that. So I think that that helps kind of bridge that character from the novel to the movie. And then the uh, organ playing by Nemo, it's uh, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, which actually a lot of music critics say it represents a storm. And you, in the movie, you could say, well, it's the storm of his emotions about his anger versus, you know, you know, should he be killing when they were the ones killing and all that. But then also it ties into the novel because in the novel, uh, the end isn't, he gets shot and the Island and all that. It's that, they go. They get caught in a massive storm, and the three of them escape. And you know, we don't know what happens to the, the Nautilus. So it's it's good to have that as not only the show of his madness when he's sweating like crazy playing it, but also to kind of give that tie to the novel. So yeah, I, I think the music for that aspect works. But like you said, Mike, the constant orchestra playing that that wouldn't really work today. Mm-mm. 
I, I, I'm going to add one last thing here. So I agree about the the uh, Captain Nemo playing the organ fit so perfect into the film, right? And I think even the the um, the consistent or music playing and reacting to the film it, it added to the film. I mean, it, and it really kind of like kind of put it together, especially the scenes underwater where there's no sound. I mean, you're going to have basically no sound for five, ten minutes when they were all underwater. Yes. So yes. you <laughs> just ambient. I think it. I think it. It, it kind of fit well. But I will say, if there's one thing I never see again is Kirk Douglas singing a song and playing uh, guitar. I, I'm good. <laughs> I'll be. See, when I first when I first watched the movie, I was watching. It, I'm like, what is going on? It just seems so out of place. I was like, this is just weird. I I, I don't get it. Which is interesting because, Rob, I was thinking that you would be the one who would maybe be the most comfortable with it since you do watch a lot of older movies. But maybe it's more of a Disney thing to put a song in something. I guess, like, the part that got me was he is the only one who sings, and it's the only song in the entire film. And it's the only one he knows. He he repeats it throughout the movie yeah yeah it's got little reprises here and there i think it would have fit better because i think you made a good point mike it ate up time to extend the film if there were small tidbits of him like as he's just killing time on the boat like at the beginning and he's just hanging out and he's like sings it for like 10 20 seconds and then that's it and then he comes back to it like a little bit longer you kind of like that's his favorite song and he likes to hum and sing it but like the whole like routine and like but, the, it just didn't fit, in my opinion. Devil's Advocate, though. I mean, I feel like yeah. it is a product of its time. I mean, yeah, a lot of movies had little sound and dance numbers, uh, and I feel like if they didn't have that, I could see critics or audiences be like, "It's a pretty mundane film. There wasn't even a song and dance." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a, a 180 from today when you look at how people are downplaying actual full-length musicals and not really showcasing the musical aspect of it. We're like back then people wouldn't be okay unless they got at least one good song, yeah, a good song exactly. and dance out of it. You know, it's kind of a weird place where we are in, in movies. So I'll throw you a curveball. How do you think the film would have fared if it was entirely a musical? Because they could pull it off. Yeah, still. I don't know about that. <laughs> they I, could pull I it off. Think that would work. I don't. I, know. I mean, I think you'd have to get the right, obviously, the right tunes and such, and all that kind of stuff. But I think they have between the beginning part that currently there, which I, I don't know if I care for it as much. Maybe it's Kirk Douglas singing is one thing, but <laughs> um, but then you have like the scene of them dining. You could totally like build on something there, like with all the different foods. I mean. Think could of you like, like be our guest, be our guest no. type of thing. You could totally pull <laughs> something off there. Then even like under the water, because obviously in a musical you can talk and hear each other under the water when you're singing. Um, they would be able to pull that off, right? But I, I could see <laughs> it potentially landing if the entire film was a musical. I just, for me, I found that begin the what is it, a whale of a tale. 
I believe was Whale the song. of a Tail. You got it. Um, it's, a, it's a great song. I'm sorry. I haven't <laughs> to it. So. I mean, it's a good, it's like a sea shanty, right? It like is. it kind of has a, a sea shanty for I listen to a lot of sea shanty Scottish Irish music. So. <laughs> it could fit right in your playlist. Yeah. <laughs> 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 now you you can't currently see it or he, see it on the podcast because there's no visual, but my two thumbs are down. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're looking for another good sea shanty song and tale, uh, check out the mermaid song by Great Big Sea. Well, there you go. Let's let so so Rob had a problem with uh, Kirk Douglas singing, and it might have been just. <laughs> Kirk Douglas. So I think this I, is a I good had time. Problems with Kirk Douglas. <laughs> Just Kirk du- for real. All right, let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about the characters. Did you have? Do we have problems with Kirk Douglas? But did you have any favorites or like, or, or anti favorites like having problems with Kirk Douglas or like did one character steal the show? Was it a good ensemble? Was it worth the money to get the big stars that that they did for this one? James Mason makes a wonderful madman. I, I have sorry. I have to do that impression when I can because that's one of my first impressions I ever did was actually James Mason. But uh, but no, he he makes a great understated madman. Like he, you you get the moments where like he's playing the organ and he looks insane. But most of the movie, it's just straight faced. He could be perfectly normal or perfectly out of his mind. You have no way of knowing. And it's, you know, um, it's not, it's, that's not easy to pull that kind of just straight faced, like super serious, but knowing the whole time that what you're doing is just, you're a madman. Mm -hmm. To me, he, he was the perfect casting for Nemo. And they say that he stayed in character, like on set the entire time, like even between takes, like he just stay in that character. But Kirk Douglas, to me, uh, it it almost felt like I was watching a a live action movie. Almost feels like a black and white, like everything feels slow. And then there's Kirk Douglas, and it just feels like a cartoon character has been inserted into this movie. Okay. <laughs> I, he he is well, and, and I mean that tracks with him being the only character singing the song too. Yeah, like that's more of a cartoon character move. I got and, you there. I can and feel he's that. Really, kind of a goofy character. Like in reality, let's let's say that twenty thousand leagues under the sea is happening in real in the real world. If they were on board they wouldn't have let Kirk Douglas back on because they can see that he is going to be disruptive to what they're trying to build here. They would have let him gone, uh, go away and drown. Uh, Conceal, I could see them letting him stay on because, well, you're going to help the professor. And so it just didn't fit. Like his character was so over the top and chaotic that I wouldn't see a Nemo taking a chance with him. That's I agree with you, Mike. That was the one thing that gnawed at me from the point that they kept him on. I think it was not the first time they threatened to kick him off, like right when they first got on the boat. But it was like later on they kind of threatened him, kick him off. Like I would, he would have been gone, man. For how many? Like make it imagine how many years and how long it took Captain Nemo to get to where they were, and then their his crew. 
how many chances they did not take, right? They did all the right things. Like you said, to keep this guy who's crazy and you, who knows what he's going to do. Why would you keep him on the boat? Now, I know there was the whole thing of like the professor was like, oh, he's my guy. I kind of save him. But I would have been like, sorry, professor, you're gone too. beat it and let, <laughs> let you all. <laughs> right. I mean, because it just seems so like like he wouldn't have gotten that far if he made those decisions in the past. So I don't know. They just kind of didn't sit well with me. But um, mm-hmm. I agree with Chakota's point. Um, I, I think Captain Nemo was by far the most intriguing character. I kind of likened him. It, it might not, he might not be the, like where the story is like starts from, but it's who it's about. I kind of likened it to, red and Andy in the Shawshank redemption. Cause it's kind of like in the purview of uh, the professor, right. In his view, he meets captain Nemo. And then, uh, then it's all about captain Nemo. So it's kind of like in the Shawshank redemption, it, red um, starts the film. Well, not necessarily starts from because it does start with Andy Dufresne, but like, it's really in the view of red and then, Andy Dufresne comes in and it's really all about Andy through the rest of the film. And coming from the standpoint of having read the novel, I have to say Nemo, very well cast. The professor, very well cast. Conceal, very well cast because they improved on the character with Peter Lorre a lot. Hmm. Kirk Douglas should not have been in it. Because uh, in the in the book, Ned Land is the reason he's he basically survives through it is because he he doesn't pull all that crap. He tells the professor like you know this is ridiculous. We've got a plan, whatever. But he doesn't go up to Nemo and start berating him and you know doing all that. He's 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 a seaman that kind of knows like these smart guys are going to talk, but I got to figure something out. So that whole bravado that Kirk Douglas brings it's not in the novel I mean the guy yeah he wants out he wants back to his freedom but he doesn't he doesn't do it stupidly like that so and I wonder wonder how much of that though is just Kirk Douglas because he's renowned (laughs) for being a difficult actor to work with and Mm. you know being pretty combative if he didn't agree with lines that were written or how he's supposed to act a scene. So I, I just wonder if that came across and he was trying to make the character more lively, even though the script may not have called for that. We don't, I don't know. I was just going to say, I loved Peter Lorre. I mean, I thought mm-hmm. he was a fantastic cast for the role and uh, it was nice to see him to not be uh, cast as a, a a bad guy, but actually someone who has become more insightful. Um, I mean, he starts to film off as the uh, professor's apprentice and, you know, pretty soon he starts to realize that the professor is just being taken in by this Nemo with the promise of all the unbelievable things and way of life here that he is forgetting about all the research that can be done and Peter Laurie conceals, sees this, and he's trying to let the professor know. And uh, I think he's a wonderful cast, wonderful character. 
I will say with Peter Lorre, I, I can't get out the vision of Bugs Bunny um, <laughs> cartoons and Peter Lorre whenever I see him come on. <laughs> Not going to lie. <laughs> so we kind of figured out that Nemo, James Mason's Nemo, kind of steals the show. He becomes the object of the movie, uh, the one that we're like looking at. So I, I kind of like the, I, I thought like we kind of talked about it at the beginning with like, was it what we expected? But like this got deeper than I thought it was going to get in kind of the um, the kind of the, the morality and the talking about it. So I have the I, I got to know what you guys think was Nemo um, from the movie. And maybe, uh, Andrew, you could give us some some insight from the book, too. But is Nemo a misunderstood vigilante like a Batman in that he's trying to stop? stop kind of these these heinous you know crimes against humanity as as he views it or is he an evil supervillain like uh elon musk i mean uh lex luther oh <laughs> i did i did go there so what do you guys like what what do you think like i feel like the the world that is painted for us in the film it, it seems as though these atrocities against humanity are taking place and it, we don't see any uh, action or, or steps being taken to stop this and to uh, stop the, the mistreatment and slavery that is taking place. And so I, I see Nemo as a potential for being a true vigilante. He's taken matters into his own hands. And clearly the governments of the world can't figure it out. And so... He feels that this is the only way, which maybe it is. Um, we don't really get a, a really good idea of what the world governments are doing or plotting. Um, so all we're left with is Nemo's view and we see it happening and it's like, oh, that's terrible. What can we do about it? Well, we can destroy their ships. So, I mean, I kind of see him as an anti-hero, but... Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe a little Batman there. <laughs> in his own way. I agree with Mike. In the movie, Vigilante Batman, he's got a, a, a specific like goal. Like, these slavers, you know, that, that's what I'm trying to get rid of. In the book, he's Lex Luthor. Uh, because it, there's a lot of, like, you know, how it starts out, it's like, Oh, well, there's been reports of accidents with ships and reports of a sea monster. But it's never given like, you know, oh, it's these specific ships from such and such a region. In the book, they travel up and down the whole world. He's not going after one specific like, you know, these are the, the people that did this, even though he there really is a government that, you know, killed his wife and kid. So in the movie, you get like this very narrow like viewpoint. Okay, this is who I'm going to go after. But in the book, it's like, I'm just going to go and, and do what I want. And, you know, it just... So Batman in the movie, Lex Luthor in the book. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It, it's I wonder like if they did that on purpose to like give him more of a... I, I hope so because it was you know? smart. It was very smart of them to do that for the movie. Nice. Because, you know, again, I like Jules Verne, but sometimes his, 
is villains, they don't have the, the motivation that you want them to. Um, you know, like if you ever read, read Master of the World, I highly recommend it. That's a much better villain. But in this and in the villains for Journey to the Center of the Earth and some of those other stuff, it's like what's their motivation doesn't make sense. Whereas the, mm-hmm. the movie, it, it makes sense. He, this is where he was held. He wants to get rid of these ships. Hurt, hit him where it hurts. Not just, oh, I'm going to randomly attack ships around the world. It sounds a little bit more Joker-ish. Yeah. Yeah. I got <laughs> that kind of vibe, too. Yeah. It was, that, like, it was meant to just like instill fear instead of getting to a final like this is what i want to happen it was just just for the sheer sake of instilling fear kind of hoping that my one desired outcome would come to be instead of like taking definitive actions to get what i really want to be done to protect the people who are being enslaved right seems like he could have done something maybe a little different Um, but again like you said the differences between the the novel and the film version. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Also the, yeah. In the novel, there's a lot of times where he lets ships see him and doesn't destroy them or anything. So it's like, okay, there's this like rumor of a sea monster that he wants to, to go around, but then certain ships he'll sink and then others he'll just like, you know, <laughs> to me, it's like if you were really trying to instill that, maybe you'd go after more of the ships instead of it being like one in ten or whatever it's, it feels like from reading it. Yeah, it makes it sound like his character should have been really laying into kind of his misanthropic uh, viewpoints and just rejecting all of society as a whole as a failure, and so then targeting any type of commerce ship or trade ships and just all of it just to destroy world economies and make them fall because he knows the folly of their governments or whatever. Um, I think that that could have been a better role for the novel anyway. Right. So there you go. Maybe Disney did improve Nemo slightly. I I think so. Having having read it, I, I think Disney did, like I said at the beginning, they did a great film adaptation. They made it, it hit better. The only thing I don't like is that clearly the crew of the Nautilus is a part of a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they are, they are devoted to Nemo. Like, yeah, no, it is cultish. Yeah. It's it's basically Jim Jones at the end. (laughs) <laughs> they're all, yikes they're all going down instead of well, yeah he, he's he's said lock the rudder or whatever and and we're going down and we're all gonna die together <laughs> it's like oh my god <laughs> yeah and I, I i will say that that part jules verne did a better job with because i didn't read the mysterious island but it's like they oh as the years go by they slowly die off working with him and then he's the last one left mm-hmm. so it's not like you know just well you're with me you're gonna die <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> all right so disney disney 
made some uh, made some improvements. Made I at least I thought it was uh, a pretty it was, it was a good movie. Like I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it. I as a Disney fan, I feel like it filled that gap. Did what, did you guys overall give me a quick little overall? Um, you know, I, I know Andrew kind of talked about he they they gave the kind of improvements in some places, but overall, what did you guys think? Like good movie. Yes, no, watch it again, watch it once, don't even bother. What do you think? Yeah, if you if you watch it, I'm going to highly recommend that you follow it up immediately with the making of because it'll give okay. you so much more appreciation for what you just watched um, in terms of the complexity of what they, they did here. Um, uh, they did a lot of innovation in terms of like new types of diving equipment, new types of filming rigs to pull this off and techniques um it's very fascinating and you know upon watching the movie i was like meh uh it 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 felt like a movie that had potential to be even better um i i think that if we had some more encounters under the sea again i know this movie like you said, it had a, a huge scope creep in terms of their budget. Um, and if if this movie had flopped, there would not be a Disney today, essentially, is what that amounts to. Um, it was going to be financially ruinous if they didn't get this money back. Um, and so watching the making of it just gives you such a good appreciation. It's, it's uh, fascinating. They go into greater detail of what you mentioned, Eric, in terms of building Studio 3 and the complexities of trying to make a giant squid come to life. Um, And then they talk about how they had two different methods. The first method was a complete failure. Walt didn't like it and was like, you're done. Go do something else for a while (laughs) so that we can figure out what's going on and we can make this work. Um, and I just have one other thing to say about that whole scene. Why do they have to go out and fight the squid off of the Nautilus? Why couldn't they just wait it out? Because clearly it's not going to be able to eat the Nautilus. So just wait it out. (laughs) That's my rational side. But it was a cool scene. It was a cool scene. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Walt made him shoot it again. No. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little tidbit on that scene for you. In the book, it's 12 of them. <laughs> 12 giant squids? Yep. <laughs> I like, I mean, budget wise, that would have, you know. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> One was enough. To answer your question, Eric, yeah. I'd watch it again, but I'd skip Whale of a Tail. Oh, man. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Andrew? I, I say watch it. I say uh, if you're at all interested in it, read the book. Um, I'll give you two little tidbits that will help you with reading it. Number one, the word cetacean means whale. Just think whale. <laughs> he uses that word over and over. I don't know why. And the other thing is, uh, this is may, maybe interests everyone, but the name Nemo, he actually took from homer's odyssey because at one point odysseus is asked his name and he said he calls himself autis which in latin is well i mean in 
autus translates to no one, but then in Latin, that's no one is Nemo. Hmm. So, you know, mm, just a little, a little interesting because obviously, you know, in the Odyssey, Odysseus travels the ocean for years aimlessly, which is Nemo. Uh, yeah. So be sure to read it if you're at all interested in this movie. Um, nice. And have patience. <laughs> And thank you, Andrew, and thank the Phoenicians for that language lesson. <laughs> Speaking of uh, scenes that I would skip, though, I would skip the, I would say, offensive scene of the tribal people running out and attacking the Nautilus and then them getting shocked. And it's supposed to be funny and comical. And Ned Land's character is laughing, finding it all hysterical. It's like, yeah, I don't really care for this. Yeah, there were some there's were some 1954 moments in there. Yeah. That <laughs> so the 1953 yeah. racist stuff that we mentioned in our pre our prior episode with uh, some of the Disney short animations definitely rear their heads in 1954. <laughs> yeah. Company didn't change in a year. Well, and also like the animal stuff you man- mentioned earlier. Yeah, there are some things yeah. that show the age of this film. Which brings me to my next thing, which is kind of kind of become a tradition here on uh, Rear Cuts Media Society. We always end up here, but this movie came out 70 years ago. And since then, Disney has had little rumblings here and there of remakes for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Most recently, uh, Mick G, who did the Charlie's Angels movies and the O.C., Back in the early 2000s, he was slated to direct a version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in the early 2000s. And then in the 2010s, David Fincher from Seven and Gone Girl was attached to another project for a remake of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Both of these projects, though, were sunk like a warship by the Nautilus. Ooh. So if Disney, (laughs) right? (laughs) If Disney were going to remake this movie today, which is not that hard to believe since they do love remaking things um, and, and maybe take out all of the, the iffy 1954 things, of course. But if they were going to remake 20,000 Leagues today, who should they cast? Who should they get to direct in that sense, too? Who should make that fi- make this film? First off, I'd rather them just make a live-action Atlantis. I think that'd be a better oh, movie. <laughs> now you're now you're talking. There you go. <laughs> that might actually happen before uh, before twenty thousand leagues. Um, I I do I do uh, director Christopher Nolan. Uh, I think he could handle a big production like that. Uh, Nemo. I'm going to go back to our rear cuts favorite Willem Dafoe. Oh, um, I knew yeah. someone was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I would do for conceal. I would do Jack black for the professor, Paul okay. Bettany, Paul Bettany. Would make a good oh, professor. he's a uh, vision. Yeah. Vision. Yeah. And then for Ned land, you got to have the rock. Yes. That's oh, what I had. I, when you said <laughs> the rock and Ned land together, I imagined his character from the jungle cruise with like the little hat and the striped well, shirt. So there I you mean, go. You know, if you get Jack black back with him, it'll be like uh, Jumanji. 
There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I will say about that cast is it, you know, keeping like the rock and that's, that's pretty Disney. The rock will do Disney stuff. So that's not, you're, you're pulling yeah. from the pool of yeah. those Disney actors. So, well, ben, so he, wants, he wants to yeah, work with them still. Exactly. Dakota, you had two of, well, actually three. You had Willem Dafoe, Jack Black, and The Rock, who I, I picked. But the, for yeah, the professor, man. I picked Benedict Cumberbatch. I could see him doing that. He can, yeah. He's but, even more Disney, too. <laughs> Doctor Strange. But yeah. So that was the, the full group. But the first thing that went to mind is a remake, which I think they could pull off, but I don't think neither of them would ever want to do it, would be Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. Tim Burton could direct it and Johnny Depp play Nemo. I could see that and be real creepy. Yeah. But it would be a totally different it would it would be a very dark, creepy Disney film. Yeah. But I could see him trying to pull that off. I put a lot of thought in this. I got a list. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get the popcorn ready here. No. So for Captain Nemo. I had a couple ideas. Hugh Jackman, I think, could pull it off. Um, George Clooney, maybe. He's kind of got the brooding age uh, look to him now. Uh, Oscar Isaac, uh, Idris Elba, and potentially Russell Crowe. A lot Ooh. of them with Disney connections. No, I do. I do like some of those. I do like Hugh Jackman. Um, for Ned. I was thinking uh, Sean Bean uh, from Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, plays Ned Stark, Daniel Craig, uh, or to take us into the modern age, Michelle Rodriguez. Mm. Oh, nice. Uh, I can see that. Conceal, (laughs) Willem Dafoe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you guys all put for serious Willem but Dafoe for different is characters, like though. Yeah, so are we going to do Willem Dafoe plays all the characters oh, in this? Yeah, we'll talk about that the last oh, uh, He's I alone on the ship. Money to see that. He's alone on the ship. He's losing his marbles, and yeah. he's all these people. Show. It's, uh, like, 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 it's like the scene in being John Malkovich, where Malkovich is everybody. Malkovich, and Malkovich. Just Malkovich. Is everyone. He'll, he'll even yeah. play the giant squid. <laughs> <laughs> can we get can we get John Malkovich to play Captain oh, Nemo? No. Yes. That'd be good. Oh, yeah. Um, that's but my no. other great cast. My, yeah. my, my other conceal is uh, Steve Buscemi. I think oh, that's fun. Um, for the professor, uh, I was thinking David Thewlis. Uh, he plays Professor Lupin in the Harry Potter movies, and nice. or Omar C, who plays Lupin in the Netflix series. Yeah, no, he's he's a French actor, so I think it would it would work. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, French uh, French professor. There we go. No, it. You you are ready to be the casting director with your list. You got a lot of prospects. Like, well, if they say no, I got somebody else. I so know he's no. got them lined up. But <laughs> I think guys. what I'm hearing is that Disney on Broadway just needs to make the one man show starring Willem, Willem Dafoe. Dafoe. 
doing this movie. They just take the script and they just give it to Willem Dafoe and like <laughs> put him in the new Amsterdam theater on Broadway and just be like 20,000 leagues under oh, the sea with Willem Dafoe. See? Now here's the real question with that is, okay, Rob, if, if Willem Dafoe is singing whale of a tale, will you pay attention and love it? Oh, most certainly. <laughs> that's, no. a, that's a given. Oh well, yeah. Okay. Going back to my bad joke, <laughs> Willem the Friend will sing Willie Will of the Tale. Uh, Willem Dafoe plays the pipe organ. <laughs> All right, I think I'm. A, I want to go back really quick. I want to go back to this. Uh, what are your picks? Because it's it's stuck in. I so I I was kind of playing around with picks, and I I don't know if I necessarily have good definitive picks. And you guys picked good ones because a lot of them had like were were actually believable for Disney. A lot of good uh, actors yeah, who have no, been in no, involved. No, no, like no, even no. your the, the real question your list is, of did yeah. you pick Willem Dafoe for one of the? I did list? not. <laughs> I did not. Uh, and I was I knew uh. you guys would. I it was like one of them's gonna. And then you all three picked Willem Dafoe. One of them's gonna pick Willem Dafoe for something because he's so versatile. Uh, but um, what about? I want to go back to let's 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 go back to this Tim Burton idea because I know it's not. I mean, Tim Burton has kind of soured on Disney lately, and. Uh, yeah, never I don't know that he'd come back, but I, I kind of like the idea of a Tim Burton 20,000 Leagues. Um, I, though, am going to move, and I don't necessarily have, I, I, you guys got to help me fill in some blanks, but um, I think Nemo would be Christopher Walken in that one. A Christopher Walken Nemo. Now, he was in that uh, made-for-TV Peter Pan as Captain Hook, and he was horrible, but I feel... <laughs> But I feel like he would play Nemo in a similar way, but it would be good. Um, and of course, he was in Batman Returns. So that's my Tim Burton connection with him. Um, and then I would put Johnny Depp in with as as the professor in that case. Like, I think that's where Burton would end up with Johnny Depp because he's more of that. That um, I mean, he's not necessarily the main character, but you see it through his eyes in a way. I, I kind of feel like we could do that. Um, or maybe you would switch the two. Maybe Walken would be the professor. I, and, I would uh, think Walken would be a good professor. Walken the professor. Yeah. I just want to see him doing his Walken voice as Nemo and talking about <laughs> the people on the island. You know, I can't. I'm not going to do that, Christopher. Walken I used voice, to but, be one of them. But but Andrew will. <laughs> you don't understand, <laughs> right? Who else would he put in there? Like, who else would he put in? Like, who would Tim Burton in the Tim Burton Disney? Mm. You know, Disney presents Tim Burton's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Alec Baldwin before he killed someone. Whoa! Yikes! I think if he was doing it, Conceal would be Danny DeVito. Oh, that'd be cool. No, no, no. It'd be oh, Deep Roy. that would be, be great. Deep Roy. Oh, Deep Roy. I might go with, uh, he oh, was he was the Oompa Loompas in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I, th- I thought true. he would, he might, I thought Deep Roy would play all of the other people on the Nautilus working. Like the Oompa oh. Loompas? No. Like the Oompa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would, Danny DeVito oh, would man. be great as the assistant, the professor's assistant. Yeah. Oh, Danny I need that film. Defoe, <laughs> D- 
DeVito. And then that brings Depp. it into uh, you, <laughs> Ewan McGregor. I mean, he could oh. be. Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah. He could. Could he be a Ned Land? I I could see him oh, yeah, as a professor so. even. Oh, true. He could be too. He'd go either way. Yeah. You got some choices. And we all know that then the giant squid would be some weird, crazy creature like the snake in Beetlejuice or like something from uh, yeah, the that, same that monster. creepy. Same yeah, that it, it, it would be it would be something wild. No, but that would be crazy. Yeah, I was kind of going down that route. I, I, I didn't have a good definitive uh, cast, but I, I would love to cast it from some of y'all's choices, as I as I will say. No, I feel like that that question has become kind of a uh, rare cuts tradition as of late. Yeah, I have one final thing to add to it because it is we've been doing it a lot and we have four main characters. So my question is, who are each of us for in this movie? (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, (laughs) I mean, Rob, you can't see it in an audio podcast, but Rob is often wearing a, a hat that is reminiscent of a, of like the, you know, the Gordon fisherman or, or some sort of like sea faring <laughs> dude. It's very true. It's, it's not it's, yellow today. It's but, like yeah. a stocking cap of, uh, of sorts that a, that a, a sailor might wear, you know, when he went into port. <laughs> you got a whale of a tail. A sing whale of a tail though. <laughs> So if I'm Ned Land, there who's you go. the professor? Rob's Ned Land because of the hat. Who's the professor? Well, Rob's or uh, Andrew schooled us with some Latin. Yeah, he's the only <laughs> one who read the book, so he's definitely the professor. <laughs> and Mike, you do have you do have the appropriate beard and facial hair of one Captain Nemo. There you go. <laughs> And I do have a certain will... disdain for society. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a very Larry David thing to say there as go. well, there, Mike. <laughs> I would be I would be honored to assist Andrew in his professorship. Uh, so I will I will take that role on as the I, I Professor, I get to make a coconut radio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> coconut that makes me more of like a Gilligan then. No. <laughs> Yes, I I will be the assistant as long as that it will be por- portrayed as Gilligan. <laughs> <laughs> so now as we surface from 20,000 Leagues, which I must say, uh, it's not referring to the depth. It's referring to the distance. So just something to take note of. Fun fact. Um, we're coming out of the sea now, and I think we need to get in. To something closer to home, like something suburbanish. I don't know. Andrew, can you help us out? So I'm ashamed to say that I've never watched this movie before, but it's always been in the back of my mind because it gets referenced by so many people for being a terrible movie. <laughs> we already watched so, Plan 9. So. I know, not that one. I've seen that one a lot. <laughs> No, we are going to watch Suburban Commando from 1991, starring Hulk Hogan, Christopher Lloyd, and Shelley Duvall, in a classic tradition of the sci-fi meets suburban family. 
film. <laughs> yes. I'm I'm shocked that you said you were like, you know, you're like ashamed to admit that. That's like that's perfectly fine. You should not like <laughs> Suburban Commando is is great, but then at the same time, I do not judge anyone who has not seen it because <laughs> in full disclosure when I when I decided this I got a couple of you saying how you've seen it and couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it. That, that is true. <laughs> so we'll have a nice, fun family time here next month on Rare Cuts Media Society. Eric, where can we find Suburban Commando? Yes. Um, so it's kind of a it's kind of a rare cut. Go figure. And hard to find. Um, so you could probably find it at your uh, your local public library. Or you could rent it uh, for a cost from a lot of the streaming places. Maybe even find a a uh, bootleg version floating in a bottle in uh, YouTube <laughs> or something like that. Uh, but it's out there, and and you could find it. Um, you could find Suburban Commando, and then find us next time on the Rear Cuts Media Society. And have a whale of a tail. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Visit us online at rarecutsmediasociety.com. There you can find old episodes, subscribe, or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Um, you made a comment about, um, was it the professor? And it made me think of uh, Gilligan's Island. And I was thinking, who could be the characters? You could do the professor is the professor. The assistant is Gilligan. The question is, is Nemo Thurston? (laughs) 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 And Ned is the skipper? (laughs) It actually Uh, is not bad. It's not bad. And it could be a comedy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that infernal singer. Lovey, let's talk about oh, boat today. Skipper goes to, <laughs> to island, and and then that's when he meets Ginger. And <laughs> yeah, it's not the Marianne. savages or the cannibals. He finds uh, Ginger and Marianne. Yeah. Oh man! <laughs> what are you oh, doing? Man. <laughs> You're making uh, Warner Brothers references. <laughs> oh, I, well, like I said, the whole show is about Disney today, technically. So, you know, the other references are fine. Um, 